Hello, and welcome to episode 10 of Sect Zed. In this two-part episode, we're going to be examining the history of a very unique Christian sect known as the God-Worshipping Society. The God-Worshipping Society started small in the 1840s as followers of a prophet who claimed to be the younger brother of Jesus, and then went on to start one of the largest, bloodiest, and most catastrophic wars in all of human history, the Taiping Rebellion. Now, the Taiping Rebellion and the God-Worshipping Society have an amazing story, but it's one that's fascinated me since high school, and there's definitely going to be a whole lot to talk about here. In part one, we're going to cover some of the social and political history that's really important to understand in the formation of the God-Worshipping Society. And we're going to be talking about the life of their founder, Hong Shi Kwan. Uh, then in part two, we're going to cover more of the actual war, as well as the legacy uh, that they left behind. So during the time period we're going to be talking about, China was an empire ruled by the Qing Dynasty. And one of the things about the Qing Dynasty that's going to be really important is that while they ruled over China, uh, they were not originally Chinese themselves. The Qing were Manchus, who were from the north of China, and they're often compared to the Huns and the Mongols and these other groups of uh, sort of warrior horsemen on the outskirts of the Chinese civilization. The Manchus had united and swept down to conquer China in the 1600s as the previous Ming Dynasty was collapsing. And after starting the new Qing Dynasty, they really quickly started assimilating and adopting a lot of Chinese traditions. Uh, also, as they were invading, a lot of native Han Chinese soldiers uh, switched sides to support their invasion and help them overthrow the Ming. So there was a lot of intermarrying um, to form this new Qing aristocracy. And most importantly for our story, uh, the Qing Dynasty Manchus really strongly adopted Confucianism, which had long been very important to the empire that they had just conquered. Now, one of the big things to keep in mind when talking about religion in China and many other parts of Asia uh, is that it's incredibly syncretic, and, and the various religions present don't necessarily conflict with each other very much. Uh, while Taoism and Buddhism and Confucianism are present, you could easily believe in all three or just in two of them, uh, or jump from one to the other at different times in your life, while also believing in whatever local gods or traditions you wanted. For the God-worshipping society and for the Manchus, though, we're going to need to talk about Confucianism uh, the most because that was the most important religion to the Qing dynasty and to those who would eventually become the God-worshipping society. So for just a very general overview of Confucianism, it's a set of beliefs and not even they're not even necessarily religious beliefs, but they're concerned with traditions and morality and relationships between family members and the relationship between the state and the people. There's very little in Confucianism about God or gods necessarily, the more mystical and spiritual aspects of Chinese religions would be found in Taoism or Buddhism. But Confucian beliefs, especially Neo-Confucian beliefs, uh, like they had in the Qing Dynasty, are much more concerned with ethics and practical values for existing in a functioning society. It's very pragmatic and almost humanist with an emphasis on rationality and understanding the reality rather than focusing on other realms. So a really major part of the Confucian beliefs that we've mentioned relate to the family, how husbands are supposed to treat their wives, how children are supposed to treat their parents, how government officials are supposed to treat their subjects, and how subjects are supposed to treat their superiors. It's all that sort of thing. So for a few times now, we've mentioned, a few times in other episodes, we've mentioned the concept of a civic religion like they had in ancient Rome, like the, the cults of reason and the supreme being tried to be in the French Revolution. And Confucianism is, in a lot of ways, the ultimate civic religion. It went through a number of changes over the years, Probably the most important one being Neo-Confucianism, where they got rid of a lot of the uh, spiritual stuff that was in it before and became much more humanist in nature. So by the time that the Manchus invaded and set up the Qing Dynasty, Confucianism was really tied up with the government, even more strongly than Catholicism ever was in France. 
After the Manchus took over China, they remained one of the largest, wealthiest, most technologically advanced, and most powerful empires on the face of the planet for about 200 years, and Confucian beliefs were very important for the stability and success of their massive empire. To be a government official in the huge and powerful bureaucracy that kept the empire running, you had to pass absolutely grueling exams that required extensive knowledge of Confucian morality, ethics and tradition, and by the time the God-worshipping society emerges, about 99% of people taking these exams failed. Confucian beliefs in theory were very big uh, on it being a meritocracy. Anybody uh, could study and take the exam and pass it and then get a position of power and influence and respect in their community, the province, or even at the imperial level. In practice, however, just like the standardized tests uh, in American schools today, one's background could have a big influence on how well one did in these exams. Certain ethnic groups were favored in subtle uh, or not so subtle ways. The exams also were not an option for many poor farming families, since it required years of dedicated study to prepare and all hands would generally be needed in the fields just to keep food on the table. The exams were also only for men. These three factors are going to become very important later as the God-worshipping society and Taipings start to emerge and oppose Confucianism for all three of those reasons. Now, internationally, we've mentioned that the Qing Dynasty of China lasted for a very long time and was exceptionally wealthy and powerful. Throughout the 1700s, after they conquered China, China flourished, and new crops from North and South America were introduced, and there was a population explosion. The population tripled in the century, going from about 100 million to 300 million. And there was a lot of internal migration. The formerly sparsely populated Manchu lands became flooded with Han Chinese immigrant laborers. And by the 1800s, the available farmland left in China was getting very scarce, and people more and more as the population grew uh, were beginning to farm less and less fertile lands, and these lands were much more susceptible to famine. If you had a bad year on one of these uh, sort of marginal lands, it would be a very bad year. European nations were also starting to arrive in greater numbers throughout the 1700s with an increasing interest in trade. But there really wasn't much that the rest of the world had that China wanted. So while China was exporting a lot of things like silk, tea, and porcelain, foreign merchants, especially the British, were increasingly worried about the trade imbalance as they were forced to give up their silver and gold for Chinese goods. It was into this situation in southern China in 1814 that our eventual prophet, Hung Shi Quan, was born. Like about half the people we talked about in this podcast, he wasn't born with that name, but changed it uh, to that later for religious reasons. But we'll call him that for the whole episode, uh, just because it's easier. Hung Shi Quan was born into a family of farmers who belonged to the ethnic minority group called the Hakka. Uh, now, the Hakka belonged to the larger Han Chinese ethnic group, uh, with Han Chinese people being about 91% of the population of modern China. The Han people had migrated into southern China in many different waves throughout history, with other Han groups like the Cantonese being much older and more well-established in southern China. Well, the Hakka had only been in southern China for a few hundred years by the time Hung was born. This may seem like a long time, but in terms of Chinese history, they were still seen as newcomers by their neighbors, and the name Hakka translates to being guest people. A lot of the Hakka had come south originally to work in mining for various metals in the hills, but by the 1800s, those mines had mostly started to fail, 
and the competition for land due to the overpopulation meant that many Hakka were destitute farmers working on very poor quality land. Hong's family was actually pretty prosperous as far as Hakka farmers go, and Hong actually proved to be very intelligent from a young age, so his family was able to save up and pool their money and send him to school while his older brothers all had to work on the farm. From the age of five, he was studying and preparing with the hopes of passing the incredibly difficult Confucian exams and earning a, and earning a position of wealth and power with which he could then support his family. So with the hopes and dreams of his whole family hinging on his success and all the sacrifices they've made to support him, you can imagine that there's a ton of pressure on him to do well. In the early 1830s, he'd grown into a young man who was kind of the, the golden boy. He was handsome and intelligent and ambitious and just full of potential and big dreams. And he's been studying hard his whole life, and he thinks he's ready. So he travels to the big city of Canton to take the exams. In spite of consistently being at the top of his class and having memorized massive amounts of Confucian doctrines, he fails, and he goes home to his family in disgrace and has to work on the farm. At this point, I kind of feel a lot of sympathy for him, um, in spite of what he ends up becoming later. He's really spent his whole childhood being told he's the smart one, you got to work hard and support your whole family, and they're all making financial sacrifices, and he hits uh, like the academic's worst fear. He fails, and it's all been for nothing. He eventually dusts himself off, though, and he gets a job as a local school teacher, studies some more, tries again, and he ends up failing the exam two more times by the time he's 23. At some point during this time, he apparently married for the first time. Sources are scarce when it comes to his first wife, but they seem to suggest she died giving birth to their first child, and the child was either stillborn or died very soon after being born. At some point while visiting the city for his second attempt at the exams, a Christian missionary shoved a book into his hands, which Hung just sort of glanced at, shrugged, and didn't really read it because he was so busy. He's there for the exam. He does take it home and adds it to his collection, though, because he's a scholar, after all, and it's a free book. When he came home as a failure for the third time, he had some sort of nervous breakdown that changed the course of Chinese history forever. The world uh, would be very different if he just passed the tests. According to his sources, that is, the sources from his family members, he was bedridden for days with some sort of deep depression, fever, or coma. It's not entirely clear in medical terms what was going on with him, but he was clearly having a severe mental or physical illness, or maybe both, to the point where his family uh, thought he was going to die, uh, and he even had to say goodbye to his parents. Now, of course, his family's taking care of him at this really low point because they love him and he's sick, but there is an added dimension to this that comes from Confucianism and the way the laws were structured and the, and the social contract um, when it came to dealing with what we'd call mental illness. If someone in your family was sick or became a danger to themselves or others, the whole family was held legally responsible for whatever they did. They're, they're a good source because they were legally in charge of his health, and they were witnessing his whole breakdown and writing about it, which is very detailed and valuable. Um, so after this long illness and delirium, he, he wakes up and he leaps out of bed and he's slashing around him with an invisible sword, and then he opens his eyes and announces that he's had a powerful dream or vision, which will come to define the rest of his life. It gives him his religious mission and his status as a prophet. And a lot has been written about this religious vision. It becomes really central to the God-worshipping society, and it takes on a very mythical status among his followers. So there's a bunch of different versions and translations of what exactly he saw in this vision. Um, and it's actually quite long. There also are parts of the vision that it seems he went back and added in later, but um, the core of it is this. He sees an old woman who washes him clean in a river, and then he meets an old man with black robes and a long flowing golden beard who's sitting on a throne. 
The old man talks about how he's a powerful ruler who's created the world, but his people have turned away from him to worship demons. The old man reveals that he's Hong's heavenly father, and he gives Hong a sword and tells him it's his destiny to purge the world of demons. Hong also meets his heavenly older brother, who shows him his heavenly army, and talks about helping him to kill all those demons. So, when he wakes up, he tells his family about this dream, and he's 100% convinced that this is an important holy message. But he has no idea what it means or how to interpret it. He doesn't know who these figures he met are, he doesn't know what the demons are, or what they're supposed to represent. And he assumes that the meaning of this vision will become clear to him in time. Um, sort of like Tenskatawa or Mother Anne, who we covered in earlier episodes. He hits this low point, he has a vision, and he comes out of it completely changed. He's more confident and outgoing, and his friends even talk about how he seems larger and taller after this. And he'll repeat the story of that vision he had for the rest of his life. He'll repeat it a lot. And uh, as we mentioned, he does seem to add some details and embellishments later that weren't there in the earlier accounts. Eventually, he'll claim that he also saw Confucius in this vision being punished by the old man for deceiving people and leading them astray. And that probably comes later, once the opposition to Confucianism specifically starts to ramp up. He also claims that this vision is why he changes his name, but it's actually a pretty minor change. He basically just realizes that his middle name sounds like the middle part of Jehovah, so he changes it a bit. But his, uh, his name change is not nearly as dramatic as, as Zell Ravenheart or anything like that. We're going to have to go back to global politics for a moment here, because a few years after Hung had his vision, the first Opium War began. Now, since before Hung was born, the British had begun subjugating large parts of the Indian subcontinent, and they realized that they now controlled huge tracts of Indian lands that were very well suited to grow massive amounts of opium-producing poppies. The British merchants saw the opium trade as one way to end that long-standing trade imbalance with China. Opium was, and is, an incredibly addictive and dangerous drug. Modern heroin and morphine are made from it, and as you can imagine, it was highly illegal in both Britain and in China. But British merchants started producing and selling it in massive amounts anyway. The epidemic of opium addiction in China had been growing worse and worse during the first few decades of the 1800s, mostly afflicting people from upper and middle class families since it was very expensive and causing financial ruin and death for a lot of people in important local leadership positions. In 1838, a Qing official was finally appointed who the British were unable to bribe, and unlike his predecessors, he took his orders to combat the opium epidemic seriously. And this official seized and destroyed gigantic stockpiles of opium from British merchants, which prompted the British to declare war in order to protect their illegal drug dealers. The First Opium War resulted in a stunning and spectacular defeat for the Qing Dynasty. The British soldiers involved were mostly grizzled veterans from various conflicts in the Indian subcontinent, and they were very experienced at defeating armies that were much larger than them, but less trained and well-equipped. The British Navy had just a few decades earlier proved itself the most powerful in the world during the Napoleonic Wars, and their use of steam technology and long-range artillery was cutting edge at the time, which allowed them to very quickly seize control of really massive and vital river systems that ran deep into the heart of China, and they could really strike anywhere in China they wanted. The Qing Navy and Army, on the other hand, in spite of being huge in number, had largely been unchallenged for so long. Um, they also had the disadvantage of being spread out across this vast empire, while British soldiers and ships could quickly concentrate and hit them at any point where they were their weakest. So after this humiliating and utterly shocking defeat, British ships were beginning to approach the huge, ancient, and extremely vital city, now known as Nanjing, but the British at the time called it Nanking. Uh, and Nanking had been the capital city of several dynasties over thousands of years. It was a profound uh, symbolic and cultural importance. 
and it was here that the Treaty of Nanking was signed. The Treaty of Nanking gave the British the right for a lot more trade in China. It gave the city of Hong Kong to the British as a major trading port and base of operations. And perhaps most importantly for the religious story, it opened China up to the activities of Christian missionaries from Europe and America. Now, Christians of various denominations have been present in China for hundreds of years, but in very, very small numbers. Missionary work had uh, confined itself mostly to small areas in Canton where foreign traders were allowed. Since Hung had been heading into the city uh, for his exams, though, he had encountered a few missionaries. They were mostly fundamentalist evangelical Americans, British Anglicans, and a few Portuguese Catholics. The first Protestant missionaries started arriving in these cities a few decades before the Opium Wars, and one of the first and most important of these missionaries was Robert Morrison, who converted a few locals and produced a Chinese translation of the Bible. Now, converting to Christianity was illegal for Han Chinese and Manchus under the Qing Dynasty, and before the Opium Wars, converts were punished harshly if they strayed too far from Morrison and the cities where they were allowed to operate. Christianity was labeled as and understood as sort of witchcraft or superstition. You could think about it, uh, you could think about the terminology as translated as unorthodoxy, which encompassed extreme forms of Taoism, extreme fringe forms of Buddhism, Christianity, any new religion that might spring up. They were all lumped together as just deviant beliefs. Morrison, for his part, didn't seem to care much about that, and when his Chinese converts were caught and punished trying to convert people in the countryside, he generally didn't put up any effort into helping them. His attitude was that it would help Christians spread in China if they had a few martyrs, and while he died before the first opium war started, what he began would indirectly create a massive amount of martyrs. So the attitudes of these missionaries were known to be pretty aggressive. Um, on college campuses like the one we're in right now, um, we're used to seeing street preachers and folks handing out little Bibles, and it's uh, actually really similar to that in a lot of ways. They're usually not even complete Bibles, they're just pamphlets, um, and the missionary work that was going on in the Opium Wars was quite similar to that. The missionaries generally had very little success uh, in these cities, especially with the translated text they're using. It was very confusing, and they didn't really provide any context for what they were handing out. Um, it was just sort of this attitude of, oh, just hand them this text with fragments of the Bible in it, and it'll all work out somehow. Um, so the book that Hong was handed in that street one day uh, when he was in town for his second exam, it was one of these sort of strange fragmentary texts, which was called Good Words to Admonish the Age. And Good Words to Admonish the Age was written by one of Morrison's few Chinese converts, a man named Liang Fa, and only four copies of it still exist. Good Words is Christian in nature, but again, it's really fragmentary. It stresses mostly the importance of destroying idols and icons, the degrading nature of sin, and making a personal choice between salvation and damnation. Sorry, I was just looking up Matteo Ricci real quick. Do you know about Matteo Ricci? Is that one of the Portuguese converts, or no? Well, Matteo Ricci was the first Jesuit to really get a foothold into China, and the way that he did it was he sort of converted someone who was um, already in the Chinese government, so he sort of had protection. But when he died, that's really how the Jesuits are able to maintain a foothold there because um, sort of one of the traditions is that when someone dies, it's up to the family members to uh, maintain the grave. So Matteo Ricci's grave was in China, uh, in the capital, and basically all the Jesuits said, well, He's our brother. 
and basically by the context of the Jesuit order, they were brothers, so the Jesuits are allowed to maintain their operations in China because their quote-unquote brother's grave is yeah, there, really and they need to maintain it. Because, yeah, the, the emphasis on family is one of the, the just straight through from Confucianism into the God-worshipping society. Um, they, they do something similar. They call each other brothers and sisters as well, but um, especially later, as we're going to see probably more in episode two, they really start to redefine the family along those religious lines rather than biological lines uh, is one of the big uh, F social reform efforts that the, the Taipings try and do. In 1843, Hung took the Imperial Confucian exam for the fourth time, and as you may guess, he failed it again. Now, at this point, it's been six years since he had that vision, but he still hadn't figured out who or what those demons were and what he's supposed to do to slay them or who those heavenly family members are uh, and where he's supposed to be. At some point around this time, one of Hung's cousins had borrowed that old copy of Good Works to Admonish the Age, uh, which had been sitting on Hong's shelf unread for seven years at that point. And his cousin goes, uh, hey, you should actually read this. Uh, so finally, Hung reads Good Works to Admonish the Age, which he comes to view as the key that unlocks the meaning of the holy vision that he'd had. After learning a bit about Christianity from this pamphlet, really, um, Hung comes to the following conclusions, which his followers would also come to believe as well. Um, one, the old man in his vision with the golden beard, that's his true father, and that's God from the Bible. Uh, two, his older brother, God's firstborn son, is Jesus Christ, who will help him slay the demons. Three, the old woman is God's wife, because at this point he hadn't heard anything about Mary or the virgin birth. He just assumed that if God had sons, then of course he had a wife. So it's this Confucian idea of the, if there's a holy family, of course it's a complete traditional family, in his view. The last conclusion that he comes to takes a bit more time, and sort of comes into being um, and coalesces as events escalate. But it's probably the most important one, and that is the identity of those demons he's supposed to slay. The demons, as identified in good words to admonish the age, are false idols, any other religions, Taoism, Buddhism, and especially Confucianism. The number one group, though, that he later comes to identify as demons uh, are the biggest patrons of Confucianism, and that is the Qing Dynasty and the Manchus. So ultimately, he'll come to the conclusion that the Manchus and the Qing Dynasty are the demons that he's meant to purge. Now, the claim that Hung makes that he's the younger brother of Jesus probably sounds way out there to most of our listeners. And in fact, this is one of the big attention grabbers when this story is usually brought up. And rightly so, because it's a pretty bold claim considering how many believers he eventually gets. In terms of context, however, it is important to say that he is specifically claiming to be the younger brother of Jesus, which meant something a little different to him and his followers than it would to most modern Westerners. It's still a bold claim, but specifically claiming to be the younger brother of Jesus means he isn't quite claiming to be the equal of Jesus. The younger brother thing implies that, at least in some ways, he's lesser than, lesser than Jesus, owing his older brother respect and obedience, um, which is, again, bringing in Confucian relations into his new Christian divine family that he's setting up for himself. After reading good words to admonish the age, Hung and his cousin baptized each other, and Hung burned all of his Confucian books and smashed all the religious idols in his home and began preaching about his vision. His first converts were two more of his cousins, uh, and he had a lot of cousins, and they were named Hung Rengan and Feng Yunshan, who will become extremely important to the movement. Uh, both of these cousins were also Hakka, and they were also pretty well-educated scholars who had failed the Confucian exams. And they made their living as small town teachers. They were both a few years younger, 
than Hung Ji Kwan and looked up to him and pretty soon they were all going around doing something that would be a pretty central activity for this sect, uh, the smashing of idols. Hung went to the school where he taught and destroyed the sacred altar which held the Confucian writings, which we can all imagine could be incredibly cathartic for them. Then he and his cousins destroyed the religious idols in their own homes. The rest of their family had mixed reactions to this, uh, with some of them converting to this new vaguely Christian sect, but other family members reacted violently to what they saw as blasphemy, and Hung Rangan was beaten pretty badly by his brothers. As you could probably have guessed, the schools where they taught were not amused either, and everyone lost their teaching jobs. Citing a passage in their holy pamphlet, again, good words to admonish the age, that, quote, no prophet is accepted in his own country, end quote, this original trio of the God-worshipping society hit the road, but not before buying two swords, which they called the demon-slaying swords. Hung Rangan was the youngest, and his immediate family members managed to stop him and take his sword away and get him a teaching job in another town. But Feng and Hung continued traveling together, preaching and smashing religious idols in small towns for a few more years before they went their separate ways. By 1847, Hung was back in the big city to learn more about Christianity from one of the many new Christian missionaries uh, who'd been flooding into the country after the loss of the Opium War a fundamentalist Baptist preacher from Tennessee named Issachar Jacox Roberts, the only Western missionary they'd ever actually meet in person. Uh, Roberts had come to China after the Opium Wars opened the country up to foreign preachers, and he'd left America because he was known by other, uh, by other Baptists for being extremist, erratic, and unable to get along with anybody he tried to work with. Now, he wouldn't be able to get along with the people in China, either. Hung studied Christianity for a few more months and eventually requested to be baptized by Roberts. Uh, but for reasons that aren't really clear, Roberts refused him, and Hung left the city again, having failed once more to finish his religious education. The things that he learned from Roberts, though, would play a big role in the new religion that Hung developed. Because being a really extreme fundamentalist, Roberts was focused very much on the Old Testament, on the Ten Commandments, and this vision of God is, as a wrathful and highly anthropomorphized entity who punishes and smites and enforces holy law. And these were the things that Hung strongly began to emphasize as well. The sense of returning to an earlier and more fundamental form of religion was something that the God-worshipping society and the Taipings would cling to. As they opposed Confucianism more and more, they started framing their new faith as actually being very old and claiming that they were returning in some way to a faith that had existed in China before Confucianism. Now, um, Confucianism was actually around in China a couple hundred years before the birth of Jesus Christ, but they still framed themselves this way as, as Christianity being a return to an older religion that uh, Confucianism had displaced. Another important thing that Hung got from his time with Roberts was access to full Chinese translations of the Bible, rather than the sort of fragmentary uh, good works to admonish the age that he had been working from up to that point. Now, after Roberts refused to baptize him, Hung went looking for his cousin Feng, uh, who'd vanished somewhere out there in his wanderings. And as a result of the Opium Wars, things were becoming increasingly dangerous uh, in the areas where law and order was breaking down. Bandit gangs were becoming more numerous and aggressive. There were pirates on the rivers. Uh, so not having been seen in a while, Feng was very much in the missing, presumed dead category. 
Hung actually uh, got robbed of everything he had by bandits uh, pretty much immediately when he started looking for his cousin. But he did eventually find Fang, still alive, and more surprisingly, Fang had, after a tough couple of years, found the perfect place for their new religion to thrive. Fang had found a position as a teacher with a wealthy patron in a region known as Thistle Mountain, uh, which was very poor, tough land, isolated and populated by a lot of the Hakka, as well as other minority ethnic groups. The locals were under threat by roving bandits and also facing hostility and ethnic conflicts, and the unity provided by this new Christian faith would prove a large factor in winning people over to the God-worshipping society. Among the lower classes from village to village, the message Fang had been preaching over the last few years, uh, they'd been gathering converts, and when Hung arrived in the Thistle Mountain region, the God-worshipping society was waiting for him. I just think it's intriguing that this is happening in 1848, which, if you're familiar with European history, there is just a, yeah. a variety, just a load of revolutions going on across Europe and France and Italy, like everywhere across Europe and there's some social revolutions going on in America too because that's the year that the Declaration of Rights and Sentiments is published at uh, uh, Seneca Falls. Yep, um, it's definitely a big time of change here. <laughs> We're going to stop here for today and things are about to snowball way out of control. Join us next episode as we discuss how the God-worshipping society becomes the Taiping Rebellion. This has been episode 10 of Sex Ed. Thanks for listening. This episode of Sex Ed was researched, written, produced, and presented by Michael Albany and Patrick Reynolds, and was edited by Patrick Reynolds. Sex Ed is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. It was recorded at LEADER, the lab for the education and advancement in digital research at Michigan State University. The views and opinions expressed by Sex Ed do not re necessarily represent those of Michigan State University or any of its affiliates.